you very much. Yeah, I was invited to speak to the confirmation group. It was actually a pleasure because I was talking all about confession. So I pretty much drove up here and told all the teenagers that they needed to repent. So I think I was doing their parents a real service. As you heard, my name is David. I came to this parish at the beginning of Lent and gave you all a talk about the purpose of Christianity. So pop quiz, what did I say? Not just improvement, transformation. Not just improvement, transformation. Anyone else want to add anything else? I'm just intrigued as to who remembers what. Mm -hmm. Sharing in the life of God and transformation into Christ. And I said we were about to enter, or we'd actually just entered the period of Lent. And I said this is a transformational period of time. So is anyone feeling transformed? Is everyone feeling like they're really owning Lent? That all the things they've given up, they don't ever want them back again. It's like, I don't need sugar, I don't need dessert. <laughs> well, as you heard, today's talk is Catholics Come Home, Drawing the Lapsed Back to the Church. But before we jump in, as always, let's just pray. I'd like to pray, this is a prayer of St. Augustine to the Holy Spirit. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Breathe in me, O Holy Spirit, that my thoughts may all be holy. Act in me, Holy Spirit, that my work too may be holy. Draw my heart, O Holy Spirit, that I love but what is holy. Strengthen me, O Holy Spirit, to defend all that is holy. Guard me then, O Holy Spirit, that I always may be holy. St. Augustine, pray for us. St. Francis of Assisi, pray for us. St. Francis Saviour, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay. We have a crisis in the church. Many people who are raised Catholic rarely go to Mass. Maybe Christmas, Easter... Ash Wednesday for some reason. It, it, it boggles my mind that people come back, I want my ashes. They'll, they'll leave the body and blood of Christ, but they want ashes on their forehead. But actually, only 23% of American Catholics go to Mass on a regular basis. 23%. That means 77% of American Catholics don't go to Mass that often. And these people, they're not strangers. There are parents, spouses, siblings, children, friends. But what about those who actually do go to Mass? Well, unfortunately, there's a bit of a problem there too. Because very often in their lives, there's actually not a whole lot that distinguishes them from their non-Catholic neighbours. If you compare the two side by side, it looks basically the same. Many are not involved in the ministries of the parish, very few of them would even consider sharing their faith. For them, being Catholic is mostly cultural and just a tradition. And God is pretty much relegated to an hour on Sundays. But it gets even worse. Although raised Catholic, many, many walk away from the faith entirely. In fact, one in ten Americans consider themselves to be an ex-Catholic. Each year, we have about 100,000 
who just fade away from the faith. In fact, if ex-Catholics were imagined to be their own Christian denomination, they would be the third largest denomination here, after Catholics and Baptists. And these figures should really give us pause for thought, because the purpose of the church, those of you who heard my evangelism talk, the purpose of the church is to evangelize, to change the world, to witness to Jesus Christ. Alexandra asked it before, but I'll just ask it again. How many people have had a loved one walk away from the Catholic Church? Either into another denomination, another religion, or just away from religion altogether? I think most of us. And that's part of the reason that you're here tonight. Your heart aches for those who have left. And you want to do what you can to help them come home. Now... Up front, I do not have easy answers. I don't have a silver bullet that will absolutely guarantee that someone will return to the church. I don't have an ironclad argument that someone just cannot possibly reject. But I do think that this is a really important topic. And I think it's one that we should be talking about more. And so tonight, I hope, if nothing else, we get this conversation started. And I say this in every talk, but I think it's particularly important in this one. I much prefer it when our talks are interactive. So if you have a question or a comment, please just raise your hand and speak up. As I said, I don't have all of the answers, but if tonight we can put our heads together and encourage one another and help one another to guide our friends back to the Catholic Church. Here's how I'd like to run tonight. The first part of my talk is basically me telling you my story about my religious background, how I encountered Jesus, how I eventually became dissatisfied with the Catholic Church, the things that repelled me, pushed me away, and the things elsewhere that attracted me. But ultimately, the thing that brought me back to the Catholic Church. So that'll be the first half. And then in the second half, I'm going to offer a few suggestions for things that we can learn from my own story about the things that drew me back and might be able to help other people come back to the church as well. So as I said, this first part of the talk is going to be story time. In previous talks, I have given a little bit of my faith journey. But tonight, you lovely people are going to get the full thing. I'm going to explain how I was brought up in the church, how I discovered Jesus, grew dissatisfied with Catholicism, but was ultimately drawn back. And as I tell this story, I would invite you to take note of the things that pushed me away and the things that I was drawn to. Because these things are going to be the material that we're going to look at in the second half. Because if they repelled me, they will repel other people. If other things attracted me, they will also attract other people. And I really want to save everyone an awful lot of time, energy, and heartache, and just stay Catholic. Amen. Now, I was fortunate enough to grow up in a really strong Catholic parish. It was vibrant, diverse, it was family-friendly, joyful, 
there was considerable lay involvement in all kinds of parish groups. And there was a thriving children's liturgy that was really creative. And I went through that, and then I took my first Holy Communion. And the natural progression of our parish was, for the boys, you would then become an altar server. And that was a really sweet gig. Because <laughs> if you're an altar server, you got paid for any, uh, any marriage or funeral that you served at. There was a yearly group trip. And at every major feast day, you got showered with chocolate. <laughs> so parish life was great. And then when I reached the age of 10, I started at a new school. And it was attached to a Benedictine monastery. And it wasn't long before my family and I, we were going to the monastery for mass. And I continued to serve, and I continued to really enjoy it. The altar service, we were placed under a, 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 one of the monks who took care and organized all of the altar serving duties. And he was wonderful. And as a result, I started to grow in my appreciation and love of the liturgy. And not only that, I really appreciated the camaraderie among the altar servers. The fellowship that is nurtured when you very nearly accidentally set each other on fire every week. I will still never cease to be amazed at the fact that we let teenagers, teenage boys, wander around with smoking coals and naked flames. It just seems a disaster just waiting to happen. But at the age of 15, I did something that a lot of you are going to be doing. I was confirmed, and I took the name Peter. And sadly, the sacrament of confirmation is seen by many people as a graduation. They've got all their sacraments, and it marks the end of their attendance at Mass. They've been sacramentalized, but not evangelized. They've gone through the motions, but their relationship with Jesus is weak or even non-existent. And I say that as someone who's taught confirmation. I was horrified. There were lots of kids that were just simply going through the motions. Some kids I knew were being paid by their parents to be confirmed. And I was absolutely certain that we would never see them again. Fortunately for me, that didn't happen. I continued going to Mass. And that continued for a couple of reasons. One, it was expected of me. There was no way I was telling my mother I wasn't going to Mass on Sunday. We never had that conversation, but I had an idea of how that might go. But I did actually like going to Mass, particularly at the monastery. This beautiful architecture, this lovely otherworldly chant, the stillness after receiving communion, and the silence in the abbey. And it certainly didn't hurt that there were some attractive females who also happened to go to Mass. God's smart. He just puts beauty everywhere. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and once I completed school, I took a year out to raise funds for university because I wanted to eat. And then 12 months later, I left home and went to university. And this is another one of those watershed moments. This is another one of those points when people fall away from the faith. They're no longer under the eagle eye of their parents. And so now they get to decide what they're going to do on Sunday morning. But through my mother's encouragement, I got in contact with the chaplaincy there. And they were wonderful. We would have mass together Sunday night, and we'd have dinner together afterwards. Not only is this a university, it's also England, so the number of Catholics is pretty small, but we had a reasonably substantial chaplaincy. 
And I really, it was a novel experience for me having a bunch of Catholics my own age. The chaplaincy also had morning prayer that started to become part of my routine because I was a computer science major and whoever set up the schedule decided they wanted to punish us, so all of our classes were in the morning. But then in my second year, things really changed gears. I became involved with a group called Verbum Dei, which means Word of God. And it's a Catholic group that really emphasizes prayer with scripture and evangelism, evangelization. And I was really attracted to the holiness of the missionaries. They, they were kind of shiny. They had a joy about them. And, and I wanted that. Whatever they had, I wanted some of that. And one of them in particular, a missionary by the name of Maeve, Sister Maeve, wonderful teacher, wonderful speaker. And she really made an impact on me. And so I started going to one of their prayer groups. And the way this would work is one of the missionaries would offer a reflection for 15 minutes, not very long, on a subject like the Holy Spirit or prayer. And then we'd be invited to pray in silence for probably about another 15 minutes. And it'd be, as well as praying in silence, we'd be given a sheet of letterhead. And on it would be some very short quotations from sacred scripture related to the topic that night. And on one of those occasions, I came across a passage from the prophet Jeremiah. And I had been through Catholic school, I had taken religious studies, and I'd had to learn a whole bunch of scripture. And I'm pretty sure that was one of the ones that I had to learn. But that night, it was different. I knew that passage, but that was the first night I really encountered it. It was like the Holy Spirit had gone over with a highlighter to get my attention. This is what I read. The word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as prophet to the nations. I read those words, and it was like God was speaking to me. Not just the prophet Jeremiah. It wasn't just a historical document. It was God speaking to me. I knew my life had meaning and purpose. Around the same time, I came across the famous words of St. Augustine from his confessions, where he says, You made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts will wander restless until we rest in you. I realized that my heart was restless. And I knew that God was the only thing that was going to possibly fill that hole that I had in my heart. And this just drove me forward. I joined, the they call it the School of Apostles. It was another night during the week. You get slightly longer teaching and more time in prayer. I was in a wonderful, wonderful community. My faith was growing and things were really good. But then I graduated. <laughs> and I moved to a new town for work and things started to not go quite so well. The first disappointment was that although I hadn't actually moved that far away, I had virtually no contact with either anyone from the chaplaincy or from Verbum Day. In fact, in the months that followed, only one person actually reached out to me. I kind of felt like out of sight, out of mind. I felt rather abandoned. And then not only that, I had moved to this town because I had a new job. And after just a couple of days there, the company went bankrupt. Which now meant that I was living in a town I, where I knew nobody. I now had a lease that I couldn't pay. 
and I now had no job. And things didn't fare any better with parish life either. After experiencing the welcoming community of Verbum Day and the chaplaincy, when I went to my local Catholic parish, it was kind of a rude awakening. Upon arrival, I was greeted by no one. The music was abysmal. The preaching was insipid and uninspired. As far as I could see, there were no parish groups or ministries. There was no, nobody really there of my own age. And there wasn't even coffee and socializing after mass. I was just another one of the anonymous parishioners who slipped in, heard mass, slipped back out again. In my entire time there, I had no personal contact whatsoever. And because of this, one Sunday on my way back from Mass, I stopped into an Elim Pentecostal church that was on my way home. And the difference was marked. Even before I got through the door, I'd had my hand shaken many times, warm welcome taken to my seat, and the music was good, the preaching was down to earth and practical. It was what I had been used to before, taking the word of God and applying it to your life. And members of the congregation came up to me after the service was over to say hello. Could you imagine what would happen if we did that in our parishes? People wouldn't know what to do. But they welcomed me and they wanted to make sure that I got connected to the young adults who were in that parish. And it was actually only a couple of weeks later that I was invited to help out with the youth group. So they were already drawing me into ministry, into that church. They were a real community. And the love of Jesus was so clear, so clearly on display. I felt spiritually fed, encouraged, and valued. Now, a few months later, I finally got a new job because the company had gone bust just around Christmas. So, of course, nobody was hiring at that point. But I got a new job and I moved to a town quite some distance away. Catholic parish life was marginally better, but I still had all of my usual complaints. I continued to feel disengaged with the Catholic Church, and I was frustrated by the apparent lack of commitment of those in the pews. There seemed to be a real ignorance of scripture, and there was no zeal, no evangelical zeal. They, people didn't appear to think that they had anything that the world needed that needed to be shared. And honestly, I really wanted to stop going to Mass. I really did. And one time I went to my last Mass. I decided, I'm not going through this again. I'm not getting anything out of this. But I went up for communion. And I came back and I was praying, sort of giving God my notice. I was like, I'm going to go find somewhere else. And I'm not one that has many great spiritual experiences, but I really felt the Lord say to me, stay. I didn't like that, but he didn't say I couldn't go anywhere else as well. So I really just wanted to supplement my Sunday experience. So I went and found the Elim Pentecostal Church in town, and they were wonderful, but it didn't really feel like home. And so over the coming weeks, I went church shopping. And I eventually found an Anglican church. It was of the evangelical variety, and I felt at home right away. It was a really wonderful feeling. The warm, welcome was warm again, and the community was really strong. The couple that sat next to me 
They invited me for Sunday lunch that day, so I went back to their house afterwards. Again, the love of Christ was really clear. They actually even wrote in their newsletter when they would you know, list out the pastor, assistant pastor, and stuff. under ministers, they said everyone. And there was a very clear understanding that I grew to, grew to encounter over my years there, that if you're a member of this church, you serve. It's not a question of do you serve, it's where do you serve. Who are the welcomers? Well, there are some people designated on a rota that will be by the door, but this is a job for everyone. And in addition to some of the wonderful things that I'd encountered before, this parish had a couple of things that really set them apart. One was that they had welcome evenings at several points, I think probably about once a quarter. And it was a couple of weeks where they invited newcomers to come, be welcomed, find out about the ministries in the church, get connected to a small group. I'll talk about that in a moment. And also, they called it Trinity Values, because the church was called Trinity. And the idea was, we want you to know what our church is particularly about, the things that we really care about. Because if you want to come here, you need to know what our mission is because you're now part of it. And not only that, they had a curriculum of classes throughout the year on and so many different subjects, but all with the idea of how does my faith impact my finances, my, my relationships with my family, my relationships with my girlfriend, you know, all, of, all of these applications. And I was very quickly involved in ministries there. In the music, I played my trumpet and my guitar, and I was regularly involved at their homelessness ministry. It was called King's Table. It was wonderful. Monday lunchtimes and Friday lunchtimes, they would open up the church hall and we would cook and serve food and sit down and eat with anybody who wanted a free meal. And I mentioned them before, another real important aspect of this church was small groups. If you've never encountered them before, the idea is that you all come together and worship on Sunday, but then another day of the week, typically Wednesday, you get together with about 12 other people. They're usually of about the same age, and you get together for a shared meal, for fellowship, for prayer, and usually Bible study. And as a result of this, my knowledge of scripture grew, and this group became my family. And actually, even after I had left that church, my small group leaders, they later asked me to be godfather to one of their children. I eventually left, but it wasn't for any personal reasons. You know, I didn't have a falling out with anybody. Honestly, life was wonderful. I didn't really want to leave. But I ultimately felt that I had to because of theological reasons. Now, for this talk, it's not so important that I go into what those theological purposes, those theological reasons were, but I'll just give you a quick outline. My first red flag was one time at the beginning of the service when the assistant pastor got up and he said, for those of you who have got newborns, if you'd like to have your child baptized or dedicated, please contact the church office. You know, whichever's right for you. And I just suddenly thought, wait, what? I hadn't realized they don't know what baptism does. They don't know if you should baptize children or whether you should have some kind of naming ceremony of some other description. And that really rocked my world. And it started me down the path of asking these truth questions. 
Because if I'm placing myself under the authority of this pastor, does he actually know what he's teaching? And this led me to question sola scriptura. It's this idea that the Bible and the Bible alone is the sole infallible rule of faith. But I saw it falling apart before my very eyes. I knew that what I would hear from the pulpit would very much depend upon who went up and stood there. And actually, the seeds of doubt <laughs> were sown a little earlier when I'd been back home visiting my mother and I was at the Abbey and I was talking, with, I think it was a novice at the time, and I was ranting about how Catholics don't spend enough time reading scripture. I ranted a lot in those days. I was obnoxious. But I was, I was really frustrated that Catholics don't read the Bible more. And he just offered a, a little comment. He said, David, do you remember that the church was here even before the first line of the New Testament was written. And it rocked my world. It was such an obvious truth. And I wanted to argue against it, but he was right. And over the months and year or so afterwards, I started working out the implications. And I read books like Rome Sweet Home by Scott Hahn. And I started seeing some real problems with the theology of this Protestant church that I was part of. And I ultimately decided that I couldn't stay there any longer. And the Lord was really gracious. One by one, he took away each of the different ministries that I was part of. So that, that homelessness ministry, my own office moved to a different part of town. I could no longer get there. Um, I played guitar in my small group. Somebody else wanted to um, take over doing music. And one by one, these things were just very gently taken away and then I spoke to my small group leaders and explained what I wanted to do. And they didn't really understand it. There were quite a lot of ex-Catholics actually in that group. They really didn't understand it, but they were really gracious. So God was very gentle with me. Now, my return full-time to the Catholic Church, I'm going to say it was a bit of a mixed bag. I'd been theologically reconciled to the Catholic Church. By this point... I accepted that Christ founded a church. It was this one. But I didn't always understand everything else. I struggled with the Marian doctrines for quite some time afterwards. And I was still quite often frustrated by the way that my local parish operated. And it was a real lesson in humility in those early years. Because I still thought I knew better. <laughs> you know, I'd previously complained about there being a lack of certain ministries in my parish. I now started to realize that, well, maybe God was calling me to do something about that. Maybe he was calling me to remedy the very things that had driven me away. But it was much easier to complain. And you'll recall, I complained about my parish priest's homilies. Well, a friend gave me some advice. He said, if you want a better parish priest, pray for the one you've got. <laughs> and I did just that particularly just as he was getting up to preach his homily. I'd pray something like, Lord, please help me. <laughs> and please anoint his words and open my ears to hear what you have to say to me. And something quite incredible happened. Without fail, every homily, I always found that there was something, some nugget that I could take away with me and try and apply to my life in that coming week. I mean, honestly, <laughs> love your neighbors. Apparently, I needed to hear that a lot because I didn't do it. 
And you'll recall I also complained that I felt that nobody in the parish was taking their faith seriously. Well, with a little bit of humility now, and over time, I started coming across families who really lived out their faith in a very beautiful way. And they invited me into their homes, and they would talk to me about what they thought the Lord was doing in their lives and in their parish. And I also started discovering that there were these groups that just went around doing the Lord's work with absolutely zero fanfare whatsoever. I do think that's a bit of a problem, though. <laughs> You've got to know that these groups exist in your parish. But there was the St. Vincent de Paul. They would go and do hospital visiting ministry. And it wasn't long before I started joining them. And so what we would do is on Saturday late afternoon, we would go and get print out from the hospital. And anyone who had entered Catholic on their entry sheet, we'd go and visit them. We would chat for a little bit, offer them some newspapers, some stuff to read, and ask them if they would like Holy Communion the following day. Now, as you can imagine, doing something like that, you get to meet an awful lot of people who still would regard themselves as Catholic, but haven't actually entered a church in years. And that was kind of a heartbreaking ministry, because I, I heard a lot of the same things that I had said for so long. I got to hear people saying why they had chosen to stay away. And that's really where I would like to draw the story to an end tonight. It's my, my Hobbit story, there and back again. Catholicism, Protestantism, and back again. Now, obviously, it didn't end there. You know, I would go on to discover the rosary. Mary and I are now okay. I discovered adoration and the liturgy of the hours. I'm not a saint yet. I still sin. My confessor would definitely affirm that, although he wouldn't give you any of the details. Confirmation students, you remember what I, we talked about? Can't say anything. And I'm still growing in my understanding of the faith. There's still so much more to know, but that's exciting. Because the Catholic Church has real treasures. We've, we've just historically been terrible. <laughs> terrible at giving them to the people in the pews. Helping them see the truth, the goodness, and the beauty that is in the faith. So that's sort of the first part of the talk. So I'd now like to try and draw out some lessons from that. Just before we go on, does anyone have any questions or comments now that I've bared my soul? No? Okay, that's fine. So, in this section, I'm really drawing from when I sat down and wrote that story, I looked at the things that attracted me elsewhere, the things that repelled me when I came across them in the church. And really, I've come up with five main lessons, five main suggestions for drawing people back to the church. Be Catholic. Be able to tell your story. Be invitational. Build up your parish so you have them something to invite people to. And lastly, help clear away objections and obstacles to the faith. So the first one is be Catholic. Everybody, please say, be Catholic. There's a Latin proverb. It's called Nemo dat quod non habit. You've obviously all heard of it. Um, so I don't need to translate it, right? It means you can't give what you don't have. So my first suggestion is be Catholic. Be convinced. Draw on all the things that the Catholic Church has to offer. Remember my last talk? 
be transformed. Because faith is more often caught than it is taught, or cart and tart, if you're American. Because your life might actually be the only gospel that somebody will ever read. A lot of people never even crack open a Bible. But if they see somebody living a life that looks different and attractive, they'll want to know more. And so I really encourage you to develop a holy curiosity about your faith. We grow up in a liturgy that we become very familiar with. But how often do we actually ask ourselves what we're doing? I encourage you to be a lifelong disciple. And part of that means coming to talks like this. And you heard in my own story, things started to change when I started meeting Catholics who actually knew their faith. And one thing that was particularly important to me, when I encountered Catholics who loved and understood scripture, you can't give what you don't have. And Pope Benedict wrote in Space Alpha, he says, he who has hope lives differently. If you believe the teaching of the Catholic Church, and if you truly imbibe it, your life will necessarily look different. And that causes people to ask questions, why? And you do this by participating in the life of God. We spoke about it last time. Receiving the sacraments particularly the Eucharist and confession, all of these gifts that the church has to, to give us, as well as nurturing a real prayer life, because what could you do apart from that? Remember what Jesus said about the vine? He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can not do too much. No, that's not what he said. He said, apart from me, you can do nothing, which means that we have to begin on our knees. Pray for your parish. Pray for your, pray for your priest, your community. And pray for those, particularly, by name, that you want to come to, into the church. And if you want to be really brave, here's my suggestion. Pray for what I call divine appointments. When you get up in the morning and you're praying, say, Lord, please put someone in my path today that I can talk to about you. And then pray to be attentive when it happens, at those crucial moments. And pray also to have eyes for those who are slipping away. I slipped away from my faith, and nobody calls me back. The point here is to live an integrated Catholic life. Because when we talk the talk, but we don't walk the walk, when our lives look exactly the same as our neighbors, People call us on it. There's a guy called Matt Warner. He wrote this. The incongruity between what we claim to believe and the lives we live says everything the world needs to know. Any honest outsider can tell that we can't possibly believe what we say we believe. Not only is our religion a fraud, but so are we Christians. At least, that's what our actions often communicate to the world. In a document I quote ad nauseum in my evangelism talk, Pope Paul VI says, modern man listens more willingly to witnesses than to teachers. And if he does listen to teachers, it's because they are witnesses. How sold are we on the faith? Does it affect our lives? Does it show 
or are we, are we ninja Catholics? In feudal Japan, there were spies called ninjas, and they were known for being able to sneak in and out of places and rarely be seen. There were legends that they could become invisible. Don't be a Catholic ninja. Scripture tells us not to flaunt our good deeds, but also don't go out of your way to hide every aspect of your faith. If you have a t-shirt that identifies you as a Christian, if you wear a cross around your neck, that's okay. If someone asks you what you did at the weekend, you can tell them that you went to Mass. It's okay. And I remember when I was first growing in my faith, I was just surprised that when someone came up to me and said, oh, I hadn't realized you were a Christian. And I had just casually mentioned I'd been to church that weekend in a group setting, didn't think anything of it. But she then came up to me afterwards and she said, can, you meet? can we talk? Because she had been thinking about Christianity and she had questions and didn't know any. She didn't know any Christians. And all it took was me just not hiding my faith to make the difference. Christ said, you are the light of the world. A city on a hilltop can't be hidden. It shines and gives light. Honestly, even just a simple sign of the cross. When I was driving up, I had lunch. I don't know, Orange County somewhere, maybe. But I was in this restaurant, and there were these two guys. And before they ate, they made the sign of the cross and said grace. It was a beautiful sight. And I've had, had friends who have had people come up to them after they've been eating because they've seen them make the sign of the cross and they wanted to talk about faith. So, lesson number one was what? All together. See, saying things in unison is what Catholics are really good at, so I really want to try and nurture that. So lesson number one was? Be Catholic. Be Catholic. Lesson number two, be able to tell your story. Tonight I've told you my story, and in more detail than I typically would. But our, we need to know our stories, and we need to know, more importantly, how God has moved in our lives. The classic text for this in Scripture is 1 Peter 3.15, where Peter says, always be ready to give an answer for the hope that you have within you. And this is really important. And being able to communicate it to different degrees. Because tonight I had a captive audience. You guys weren't allowed to go anywhere. So I had a full 20 minutes to tell you about how God moved in my life. But you won't always have that. Sometimes you might have a meal to talk over with someone. Sometimes it might just be a coffee. Other times you might have five minutes or maybe even 30 seconds. Because at some point in your life, if you, lesson number one, if you be Catholic, somebody's going to ask you why. Why are you Catholic? Why do you believe in God? So you need to be ready to be able to give the answer. And if I could give you one piece of homework, I've been told I'm not allowed, but I'm going to just say, if you wanted to do some homework, I would encourage you to go to a holy hour, or maybe a few holy hours, because it might take a little bit of time, and actually write out your spiritual autobiography. Write out your own story. How has God moved in your life? And people tend to freak out about this, because... Particularly if you're, say, a cradle Catholic, you might think, well, nothing really terribly exciting has happened. You know, I've heard other conversion stories. You know the guy who 
was a drug dealer and into all kinds of sin and was working with the mafia. And then he has this road to Damascus experience and miracles happen and then he turns his life around. My story is nothing like that. Doesn't matter. Because the story isn't so much about you. It's about God's pursuit of your heart. And sometimes that's just in the very simple ways. And words are sometimes important. It's funny, preparing this talk, I had a whole load of stuff, and I really wasn't quite sure how much to say. But this is a story that makes me sound terrible, so I'm going to share it anyway. How many of you have heard the saying from St. Francis? Preach the gospel at all times, use words if necessary. Yeah? Okay, I'm going to burst your bubble. He didn't say it. Yeah, he didn't say it. There are some things that you could sort of, it's, it's an idea. St. Francis was definitely in favor of people's actions speaking loudly. But I remember, remember I told you there was that period of time when I was ranting a lot? One of my friends said to me, when I evangelize, I just like to do it by, you know, the way that I live my life. And I just went for him. I asked him, what was so special about his life that caused people to wonder, what on earth is it about this guy? I said, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm kind and polite and patient. It's like, that's not very impressive. I know people who are kind and polite and patient who have never darkened the door of a church. So I really went after him. <laughs> and that was a jerk move to do. But the point of that story is that words are important. If you are drawing somebody closer to the church, there is going to come a point when you're going to have to open your mouth. Will you know what to say? So, lesson number one was? Lesson number two? Yes. Lesson number three is be invitational. And honestly, I think if I've got to pick one of the biggest failures among Catholics, it's this. We don't invite people to stuff. If you doubt this, think for a moment. When was the last time you invited a non-Catholic friend to church? This past week? Month? Year? And the funny thing is, when we hear conversion stories, almost always there's a point when they say that, and then somebody invited me to church. And then someone invited me to coffee. I wanted to talk about what was going on in my life. We need to be invitational. But it also matters on how we present that invitation. Because it can be gradual. We don't have to start somebody off with you know, barefoot stations of the cross and flagellation. We can start much more gradually. And I've got another talk on my website, restlesspilgrim.net. I haven't plugged my website or podcast. Oh my goodness. I must be growing in humility. Yes. I have another talk on my website, restlesspilgrim.net. Ah, humility's gone. Uh, it's called Doing What You Love for Jesus. I'm just going to give you the basic point. Doing ministry in the church doesn't really require you to do anything incredible or out of the ordinary. It can, but doesn't necessarily. I would invite everyone who hears that talk to simply do what you love, do the things that you love, and invite people along. You know, my, my buddy Joe loves scotch, so he organized a scotch tasting evening. He invited our little circle of friends, and also people who are on the periphery. People that he bumped into mass. It's like, oh, we're doing this on Saturday night if you would like to come. 
And what that does is it puts Catholics into this person's orbit. Because we have a habit of living in our own little bubbles. Religious and non-religious, we both do it. How many people you know, how many people do you know who aren't Catholic? How many people do you know who aren't Christian? And I can definitely tell you that there are people in my life, I think I'm probably the only one that they know. And so, if I want this person to become Catholic, become Christian, I'm going to improve my chances if I put more Catholics into their orbit. And that can begin simply by inviting them to come and do something fun and see how great Catholics are. And this one is particular to the West. How many of you know your neighbors' names? How many of you are on first name terms? That's, that's actually not too bad. That's not too bad. But we're generally pretty terrible at it. But one last thing about inviting people. Sometimes they'll say no. Sometimes they'll say no a second time when you invite them again. Be persistent. You can change the thing that you're inviting them to, but don't give up on somebody. I was going to say that's how I got my girlfriend, and it's actually kind of true. I just kept bugging her until she agreed to go out with me. So, lesson number one. Be Catholic. Lesson number two. Be able to tell your story. Lesson number three. Be invitational. Lesson number four. Build something. Here you're actually inviting them. If you're going to be invitational, you need to have something to which you can invite them. So, this is really just a plea to pour your life into your parish. This is Matt Warner again. He says, instead of lecturing people about going to church on Sunday, let's inspire them to want to go. Instead of telling them to dress appropriately for Mass, let's give them something worth dressing up for. Instead of telling them not to sleep around, let's fascinate them with the pursuit of purity. Instead of preaching that, it is, that giving is better than receiving, let's just give. In preparation for this talk, I went on the internet and read a lot of people's stories about why they left the Catholic Church. And there were a lot of things that were said there that I've already said tonight. Some of my, many of my own kinds of reasons. And I would even go so far as to say the main reason that people typically leave is not doctrinal. It's usually much more pastoral. It's the way that fellow parishioners have treated them, the way that the priest or the DRE has treated them, the recent scandals in the church. It's because of things like this that people typically leave. They might get buttressed with you know, some arguments against some of the harder Catholic teachings. But it's pretty consistent. And so that means that we need to invest in our parishes so that our parishes have life. So that if we have lived our Christian life as we should, if, it, if we've lived it differently enough for someone to ask us about it, and we've then told them our story, and we've been invitational and invited them to our parish, what do we invite them to? Are there events? Are there events for people? Are there events that would be friendly for somebody who has no background at all? Or maybe from another Christian denomination? What about our liturgy? Is it beautiful? Is it transcendent? Does it lift our mind to God? What about for follow-up? What about new people to the parish? 
Remember I told you about Trinity Values? The way they had this series that was specifically there to catch new people and to fully integrate them into parish life. Are people who are exploring Christianity naturally fed into RCIA? Are our parishes hospitable places? Probably the most consistent thing I heard was, I went to Mass and left, nobody noticed. And in the Epistle to the Hebrews, it talks about never neglecting to show hospitality to strangers. The author says, because people have entertained angels unknowingly. I'd actually even go further. If every single person is made in the image and likeness of God, when we welcome strangers, we're welcoming Jesus. St. John says, how can you claim to love God when you don't love your neighbor? Your neighbor can sometimes be the person next to you in the pew. And when you're looking around your parish, as I did, and see gaps, how do you respond? Do you just complain? Maybe go find a place that does better things? Or are you more willing to step up and do something about it? My friend Rachel, she was converting into the Catholic Church, and I actually submitted her for an award that we have down in San Diego for the very simple reason that Easter Sunday she gets baptized, bam, young adult group started, Bible study, all this stuff begins. Because she saw a need in her parish, and she didn't ask someone else to do it. She saw a need and went to the parish priest and said, I would like to help. And he said, go for it. And one last thing that I've got to say, because this is something the Catholics keep seeming to think. We need to dispel this. The number of times I've heard someone say, I don't really have any skills. You know, I, I, I'm not that special. I don't, can't lead a Bible study. Can't do this. Can't do that. Nonsense. Nonsense. You know the parable of the talents where three guys, they get different numbers of talents. Their boss goes away, comes back, and wants to see what they've done with them. And the one who had five talents made another five. The one that made three made another three. The one that had one went and buried it. One talent is an obscene amount of money. I think one of the things that Christ is trying to tell us here is that every single person has an obscene amount of grace that God's poured out into their life. And as I said, serving the church doesn't simply mean being a reader, Eucharistic minister, or doing something at Mass. What do you love? Go do it and invite other people to join you. Okay, we're around in the corner now. Lesson number one. Be Catholic. Be Catholic. Lesson number two. Tell your story. Lesson number three. Be invitational. Lesson number four. Build something. I had real difficulty naming that one, so I just went simple. Lesson number five, clear away obstacles. So you've been living your best Catholic life. You've been invitational. You've helped build up your parish. But sometimes people then don't immediately want to convert. It's kind of frustrating. They have objections. And this is where apologetics comes in. Now, apologetics doesn't mean apologizing. It means offering a rational defense for something. In this case, Catholicism or Catholic teaching. And it has something of a bad rap in some parts of the church because it's seen by some people as just crushing your opponent's argument. 
which is a lot of fun, but kind of missing the point. I'd really like you to think of apologetics as clearing a way, clearing the obstacles out of the path. You know, St. John the Baptist, he said, prepare the way of the Lord. That's what apologetics is meant to do. It's meant to clear away obstacles so people can come to Jesus in the Eucharist. Now, I have another talk on apologetics on my website, restlesspilgrim.net. Yep, all humility now utterly gone. But I would like to mention just a few points. When you're talking with non-Catholics about Catholic theology, listen more than you speak. I remember one of my friends who was leaving the Catholic Church. When she told me, I said very little. I needed to hear her. I needed to hear her reasons and try and work out if there was anything else going on as well. Because there's no point offering an argument against something that they're not even arguing. And in fact, I'd even suggest, rather than giving statements, refuting somebody, ask questions. It's far less aggressive, and then you get people to talk more. So rather than saying, well, that's wrong because of this passage, or this church father disagrees with you, you say something like, have you read the church fathers? Do you, do you know what they said on this? Or how would you respond to somebody who would reply that this doesn't work for this reason? And also, if you don't have an answer, if somebody gives a reply to you that utterly stumps you, it's okay to say, I don't know, but I'll get back to you. And make sure you get back to them. Remember I said at the beginning, be Catholic and be a continuous learner. Part of that means that when you encounter something you don't know, go find out. You don't have to read the entire Summa Theologiae from St. Thomas Aquinas. Just grow a little bit in your faith every day. And if you know you're going to be going into a, a situation that's going to require, apologi require apologetics, prepare. So if you live in an area where you know Jehovah's Witnesses are going to come around, it would pay to read up a little bit about what they believe. And one thing I do suggest for people that really want to get good at this, listen to Catholic Answers Live. You can get it on the podcast. They often have open forums where people just call in with their questions. And what I like to do is hear the call's question, hit pause, and ask myself, how would I answer that? I'm usually driving in the car, so I'll pretend to be one of the apologists and give my response. And then when I'm done, I hit play and see what the professionals did. And not only listen to their answer, listen to how they answer. You'll see that they will ask questions. You'll see that they'll be charitable. They will remain calm. And that's probably the last thing that's really worth saying. When you're doing this, you're trying to win a soul, not an argument. You don't want to crush someone. You want to clear the way and show them the truth. And sometimes that means backing off when more heat is being generated rather than light. Okay, and my time's just about up. Let's just go through the five points. Lesson number one, be Catholic. Lesson number two, tell your story. Lesson number three, be invitational. Lesson number four, build something. Lesson number five, yes, clear the way, prepare the way. Honestly, there is so much more that could be said. And I hope that 
when I've tidied this up and we pray and we have Q&A, I want it to be an open discussion. Because, you know, I have, I have close friends also who I'm really trying to get them into the Catholic Church. And the point of a talk like this is to encourage one another and spur one another on. But I think doing those five things, if every Catholic did it, the church would look very different and our society would look very different. But let's not wait for people to leave before we try and convert them. The people who are in our parishes now, let's make it part of our mission to help everybody see the truth, goodness, and beauty in the Catholic faith. And in particular, if I had to pick one thing, to recognize Jesus in the Eucharist. When I wandered away, I had no idea what was going on in the Eucharist. That was why I judged the church on music and preaching and how welcoming it was. If I'd realized that Jesus was there, body, blood, soul, and divinity, I wouldn't have gone anywhere. One last quote from Matt Warner. The great thing about saints is that they will not lose their faith because of a bad liturgical music. They can suffer bad preaching, small budgets, poor management, and every single one of the many fools that we have here in this hospital of sinners, the church. They'll still be in the pews on Sunday, quietly winning the world for Christ, slowly transforming the church, recruiting more saints, and often fixing other problems in the process. Let that be us. Join me in prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is the prayer of Cardinal Newman. He was English, so you know it's good. God has created me to do him some definite service. He has committed some work to me which he has not committed to another. I have my mission. I am a link in a chain, a bond of connection between persons. He has not created me for naught. I shall do good. I shall do his work. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.